Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming along. When I first read the program for the Festival of Ideas, it, it occurred to me that it might be a little bit top-down. And I rang Trish Hansen, who's in the back of the house, this afternoon, and I said, help. And she said, I know exactly who you have to speak to. And the first person she said was Moira Weir, who's sitting to my left. And the next two names she said were Danielle Spencer, who's right here, who she accidentally CC'd in at the time. So she knew something was happening, and it was able to remain mysterious. And at the very end is Alex Brunn. These three women, <laughs> insanely, do an enormous number of projects. I'm gonna read some of the names just because I love them. The, my first and favorite is Unfuck the World. They're global shapers. They're chookas. Chicken? Chick? Chooks. Uh, with three S's. Um, they're the foundation of tomorrow. Um, and they're literally connecting the world. So what I thought we would do is I'm gonna invite each one to introduce themselves and talk about what they do. And then we're gonna have a conversation among ourselves and then we'll open it up to you. So please welcome our guests. I'm gonna to throw to you because you were the first name that got mentioned. And every time I've said, we're gonna do something about community and entrepreneurship and um, education, your name comes up. Well, I'll thank my publicists and uh, friends. So thank you. Thank you so much, Trish, for um, putting my name forward. It's lovely to be here today. Nina Mani, it's, I really want to acknowledge that we're on Ghana country in this beautiful Adelaide Plain that we know in its first name as Tandanya. Um, I live in Widawali, which we all know on the map as Selex Beach on the Flurio Peninsula. And... Um, I uh, started my professional life as a social worker. So, and I've always, and I still do see myself as a social worker. And I haven't done much clinical work a little over the years, but primarily I've worked at the systems level, really trying to hold on to levers or find new ones or make new ones to shift the conditions that are holding inequity and injustice in place. And I seem to have a penchant and uh, for patriarchal systems. So I uh, learnt a lot of those skills uh, in the Catholic Church, in the Australian Labor Party, and more recently in entrepreneurship. And um, I currently sit on, uh, I'm a ministerial appointment in the, um, for the Entrepreneurship Advisory Board, which reports to the government and to the Minister for Innovation and Skills. My um, in, in, I you know, grew up in uh, South Australia predominantly. I've lived and worked mostly in South Australia, but I've always had a, a global outlook and have worked in international um, systems and uh, organisations. Mostly my time these days is spent... Um, when, when you're an entrepreneur, people ask you, you know, what are you disrupting? Uh, so my answer to that question is I'm disrupting patriarchy and colonisation. Uh, there's not a lot of money in that yet. But very soon, the world is going to see the largest wealth transfer in history in the next 10 years from men to women. And for those who are um, interested in investment and impact investment, 
um, they will be uh, very pleased to know that women don't invest in the same things that men have invested in. Surprise, surprise. We are much more interested in things that don't blow up people or don't kill people. Uh, we're interested in education, opportunities for all, uh, human rights, justice, um, health tech. So they're the things that are interesting me at the moment. Um, and I founded an online community nearly four years ago, which is called Chooks SA. So those of you who are in Facebook land might know about it. And there's over 3,000 women and men involved in that now. And a couple of years ago, uh, the Hen House Co-op. Uh, I'm also um, with Sarah Gunn, who some of you might have seen in the first session in Benithan Hall, and Amy Orange, who's here today. The three of us also have a social enterprise called CoLab for Good, which is an intermediary trying to support social enterprises get up and running here in South Australia. So that are a few of the things I'm involved in, and at the global level, uh, SHEO, which is a, a network of women uh, all around the world and non-binary women trying to build a $1 billion perpetual fund for uh, people who want to work on the world's to-do list, which is our shorthand for the um, sustainable development goals. There's plenty going on. I live a full and interesting life. I am a grandmother of one little person whose name's Archie, and I am enjoying very much seeing the world through his eyes. And uh, since he was born six years ago, I have become more and more radical than I was before. Go little boys. <laughs> I might ask you, Danielle, to tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how you came to it. Sure. So, hi everyone. I'm Danielle. Um, I am one of the directors of South Start, uh, which is an annual innovation and startup festival hosted here in SA. Uh, it was run in May, and it has led me to meet many incredible people like Moira, Alex, Trish. Um, really working to grow uh, our innovation ecosystem at a national level. So in that, you know, there's a multifaceted conversation, but largely trying to connect the dots between investment, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, fundamentally the humans that stand within that. So I'm really uh, passionate about um, drawing out the deeper conversations that need to be heard and had um, in order to even have a conversation about what innovation is and what problems we need to be solving. Uh, I came to working on South Start. Um, we actually took over custodianship of it. Uh, it was founded in 2013 and I stepped in in 2017 with my partners. Um, but I, first and foremost, was the child of a founder. Um, I think that is really important personally um, to why I'm here today. Um, you know, ra being raised uh, by parents largely who were challenging systems and seeing what's really involved in that, uh, financial difficulties, you know, relationship difficulties, really the challenges and the stress that people carry when they're trying to make a change. Um, we don't have those conversations enough, so that drew me to, I guess, a curiosity around the fact that I was, you know, I am like a, a privileged, you know, white uh, person who's, you know, been born and raised in South Australia, have been afforded the opportunity to study here at uni and travel and, and had all those things, but really was hyper aware that with that comes a responsibility really fundamentally to create the opportunities for those who aren't in the room and aren't being heard. And yeah, that's, I could ramble forever, but 
a lot more comfortable putting people on stages than being on them. So <laughs> grateful to be here today, but stepping outside the comfort zone, definitely. <laughs> Alex, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your many sure. um, endeavours? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with where I work. So I'm at a very special place um, on Hindley Street called Youth Inc. Um, it is a school, but now that I've said the word school, I want you to eradicate whatever image that just gave you because I can assure you we're, we're far from it. We take young people 17 to 24 years old whose potential was not correctly harnessed in the mainstream system. Um, we've eradicated a lot of the things that are normalised in schooling. They, they work on projects, so as Laura mentioned, Unfuck the World is probably one of the uh, boldest projects that I, I worked on. Um, so to give you an example, it was an eight-week ideas incubator for young people to look at what they really hated about the world, um, what were the social environmental problems and, and how could we fix them. Um, so you can probably imagine if you were someone who didn't like to be boxed into a classroom doing English and maths and things you didn't like, to be offered a place to have an offering in South Australia for young people to go and actually work on what um, they're passionate about um, is something I'm yeah, really, really passionate about myself. Um, I hated schooling. Uh, I scraped through. Um, but the fact that we now have a place for these young people to go, um, because before we existed, it was sort of, you know, there's flow, but if you don't quite fit what's built for you, uh, what is the offering for our youth? Um, so I'd like to think we're well on our way to kind of bridging that gap. Um, I'm a sociology and anthropology student. Um, so very, very passionate about those things. If you ever want to unpack human identity with me, I'd love to. Um, and then I guess I'm also a female football player, which um, when I was a little girl wasn't something women did. Um, and when I started playing last year, I had a rude awakening to the sexism and misogyny that still exists in sport. Um, so I decided I wanted to do more than just play. Um, I started doing this online TV show, so for the Adelaide League. Um, so I put together this bespoke women's segment for it. Um, and I'm not a journo, so it started off pretty shaky. It's still not, it's not great, but um, I'd like to think I'm doing something to try and, um, you know, represent the women in the sport. Um, I'm also the mother to a beautiful seven-year-old girl as well. So... One of the things that I found really interesting reading across your platforms was that you've taken a lot of language back. And um, I wanted you to talk first about stakeholders because I think, I think we think of stakeholders not really as humans, but more as kind of concepts we can get things from. Um, well, in the arts at least, they're sponsors. Um, so can, we can you talk a little bit about what a stakeholder is and what that means to you? Um, and also, um, one of the things that I found really interesting um, is it doesn't feel like there are a lot of hierarchies, that when you're dealing locally or globally, you're kind of meeting um, respectful, in a respectful place without hierarchies. So does anybody want to tell me what a, what a, what a stakeholder is? In your, new, in your world, what does it mean? Yeah, so um, I am a passionate co-ops person. And uh, so co-ops, cooperatives and mutuals. So all of you who've got an RAA card in your pocket, you are a member of a mutual. That's probably 95% of you in the room. Um, so uh, I, I mean, I've been a member of co-ops for many decades and I really love the way in which there's um, equity and equality being built in. And I think this is one of the challenges around the language like stakeholder. 
So stakeholder assumes an imbalance in power. You know, someone's got something and someone's giving it to you. So I'm always interested in the power conversation. Um, I work with a bunch of people called Ethical Fields and we have a line that we often say is, uh, stakeholders, if they actually had a stake, you know, what would that actually look like? Because in fact, most stakeholders uh, don't have a stake. You know, they are, they are, as you say, in the arts, they might be sponsors, um, we're customers, we're consumers, there's all sorts of ways, shareholders. Um, so I think that if we start looking for uh, business models that um, and, and community arrangements like associations um, and um, co-ops, I think there's we've got a very strong, rich tradition of that actually. And in South Australia, some incredible history to go with us. Um, one, the, one of the very first co-ops in the world, which was all women, was the hairdressing co-op here in South Australia. And that's, all of us understand what bulk buying is now, but that actually began here in this town. So when I see the Adelaide University, um, you know, the 14 knighthoods or something, I don't get that excited about that. There are other things we can also um, <laughs> really demonstrate where the different kind of stakeholder was um, part of the story. I think how I would define a stakeholder depends on who I'm talking to. And I think particularly, you know, we work quite heavily with state government and, you know, obviously there's a very different layer of, of conversation and language that comes into the mix. But, you know, with what we're growing and building with Southstart and just personally, anyone that I would consider, you know, my personal stakeholders is I really connect with those who are willing to recognise that how we are at, you know, our present state is not concrete. And anything that we've been taught, anything that we fundamentally believe to our core, um, anyone that has that recognition that, that where we are today isn't where, where we may be tomorrow and has a willingness to have that conversation and look into you know, how we move forward from the present, those people, um, individually and those organisations there who I personally consider our stakeholders. And yes, you can, you know, put a language set, you know, we work heavily with investors, with founders, with, you know, executive level individuals, but I think that conversation leans itself to the fact that we need to recognise that we are working within current systems. We need to apply different language sets to that currently are, uh, you know, succeed in those systems, but how do you also have a different way of approaching that conversation and, and removing the word stakeholder and defining people by groups as opposed to recognising the qualities that exist, I think. Yeah. And do you think that sometimes if you aren't using that language, it can make people a little bit nervous? Absolutely, yeah. It's um, really interesting. Like, we every year we bring in a large proportion of our speakers and, and partners really operate within the Eastern State Board, um, across the Eastern State Board and, and internationally, and, and really to, to grow our presence and marketing efforts within SA has been a huge challenge. And personally, I found that to be quite an introspective thing because I've had to look at, okay, well, I spent largely six years overseas coming back and forth and, and, and understanding that the different cultural economics that exist, um, how we are particularly more broadly, you know, in SA, you know, very blanket terms, but I think it's definitely been a challenge understanding the different perceptions 
that exist here within our state. I love our state, absolutely, but looking back to the colonization and, and really the way that our society has evolved in comparison to other locations, we need to recognize that and understand how that has yeah, led to certain things. Alex? I find it fascinating. So my title is Community Builder at You Think. Um, so a significant number of the people that we partner with um, come through me, but I don't think I've ever referred to them as stakeholders. Mm. Um, it hasn't occurred to me till just now <laughs> that I haven't. Um, I think when I connect with these people, it's, it's that human element to it. They're members of our community. Um, and when they partner with us, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is doing right by our young people and doing educational justice. Um, so it's never, I guess I'm privileged in my job in that I never have to look at what they're giving, what's the, the gain. It's never in a monetary way. It's, it's always got a bit of deeper meaning. Um, so I've never had to look at them as a, where's the give and take and who, who's benefiting from this? It's always been very, you know, it's got to strike people in the heart and and it's always been for systems change and the greater good, so, yeah. It's interesting. Um, when we talk about being an entrepreneur, we often talk about an individual who comes up with a concept that is monetized and they make a lot of money. And yet none of you operate in that way. Um, and it's been interesting for me how much you invest in the idea of the community because it does kind of go against all of our societal norms. You know, we're in a period of kind of out of control greed um, and destruction. And so I guess I just wanna, I wanna ask you what entrepreneurial means to you, what entrepreneurship means to you, because you're giving it such a different meaning. Do you wanna go first? Yeah, I guess, so when we first started at You Think, we described it as an enterprise academy. So we wanted young people to be enterprising. Um, and we do that through an interesting model where we try to enhance their headwear, heartware, and hardware. Um, and funnily enough, the things we list in, under there come under the kind of enterprise skills for the fourth industrial revolution that we want all young people to have to be entrepreneurs. Um, and I think it, it's hard to foster that mindset in young people when they come out of a system that's crushed it out of them since they were five years old when they started schooling. We've, we've taught young people to obey um, and we've taught them if they don't, then they'll be punished. And then they're in that system for 13 years and they come out and we go, well, no, now you need to have original thoughts. You need to go out there and change the world. Um, but they haven't been taught how to. Um, I think being an entrepreneur is the people that can see it big picture-wise, they can see, they can do systems thinking. I don't know how they've got these skills because they weren't taught them in high school, but there's some, I think it's through lived experience, they go and realise the injustices, um, especially the marginalised young people I work with. If you want to know what's wrong with the system, you talk to the people that have been at the bottom of it their whole lives. Um, and I think that's how we get our entrepreneurs. It is through living hardship, through hardship. Um, and I think it's, it's once they get the sight, they can see the system for what it is and not what they've been taught that it is. And they start to see ways, solutions, I guess. Um, but I think it's very, very difficult to work with people who come from a place of extreme privilege, um, who the system does work for. I think it's very, very hard for them to see and empathise with those in our community who it doesn't. Um, so there's a bit of a battle there, I think, with being able to, to see one another and see what's really going on. 
I fundamentally do not like the word entrepreneur um, or entrepreneurship. Um, I, I really actively try to avoid using it, if ever. Um, I, I think it, it becomes really dangerous when, you know, we've got incredible efforts across the board um, right here and now where, you know, innovation and the value of that is being recognised. Um, and we need to continue to support the individuals that are driving change and the initiatives like this. Um, but the minute that we start going back to that old way of thinking in that, okay, well, what's that label that we put on that? I think that's where we're going wrong from the get-go. Um, I think looking at, you know, the most incredible founders or people who have really made significant, you know, changes to the way that we live, um, rarely would they be the ones that, you know, you might see getting awards or being defining themselves as entrepreneurs, but, but they're really just focused on their own, the problems that they've encountered and the, you know, the, through lived experience, they have that willingness to be obsessively focused on actually doing something about that. And I think we need to do better as a collective at identifying who those people are, not saying, okay, well, you're an entrepreneur, but more looking at, okay, what are the qualities that lead to creation? What are the character traits? How do we draw those out and how do we have more dialogue about that? And if that leads to the creation of a company, even if it doesn't, if it leads to the creation of, you know, an internal um, performance or just within their family, you know, if someone renovates their home and it's you're creating. I think whenever you're creating, that's incredible and we don't have enough conversation about that. We're so quick to to drive this narrative around entrepreneurship um, and the need for it to be directed and labelled and categorised. Yeah. I also sometimes wonder if it's false hope. You know, if yeah. you know, if you just if you're an entrepreneur, then you're going to get money and it's yeah. all going to work out. Where I think one of the things I've certainly observed is that its meaning is 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 pretty wobbly, mm. um, and so. Yeah, no, I really agree with what you're saying, Danielle, and um, appreciate those thoughts because I think it's, it becomes codified. Mm. Like, this is what an entrepreneur looks like. This is what an entrepreneurial school curriculum looks like. Mm. This is uh, how we reward people in the space. When, in fact, um, I prefer language around, like, problem solvers um, uh, because people with lived experience always want to solve the problem uh, that is impacting on them and whatever that is. And so for me, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So I would much rather think about people as inventors and problem solvers um, than entrepreneurs because I feel that it is this very slippery slope to, the own, to one model of an economy using that language. Uh, which is, you know, um, I would consider that rampant capitalism. And, when, and that gets rewarded, you know, when you have $5 million grants going to a gaming company and things like that, as opposed to um, investing in, um, you know, a new contraption that somebody looks like a contraption to me, but if I was blind and needed that particular thing, it would have been invested in. Um, so uh, that's why I'm interested in community wealth building and why I'm interested in community ownership uh, because I think that is a, a, an inoculation to that, that kind of thinking. But it's also much tr truer to how we behave as humans. 
We need each other. And if we, do not be, if we don't act in that way and we don't have a relationship and understand we are contributing to each other's well-being, uh, and we only have to think of what we're doing right here in this hall today about how we're protecting each other by good behaviour around our public health. Um, it, having been rampant individual, individualism is not going to keep us well. This is a very basic human thing. And it's the same about um, how we go forward um, as a whole society and indeed how we go forward as a planet and a species. So we really need to be careful with our language and use, as you were saying earlier, you know, what other words can we start using? And so for me, you know, necessity is the mother invention. So I'd really like us to um, feminise some of this language as well and think about how we can do it in a way that's um, opening up rather than closing down. Yeah, it's also interesting because um, I've just I've just slightly overwhelmed questions right now. Um, well, what, what, I'll start with this one, which is part of the thing that I, we touch on is we don't give people tools. And um, one of the things I'm very interested in is tools and how we value creativity. Um, and I think it's especially problematic for young people. Um, and that's what I guess I'd like you to talk to because I think that ordinary migrants, any disenfranchised group is not only, you know, um, uh, compromised in so many ways, but the, the thing is, how do we give people the tools that they need? I mean, obviously you're doing it, but I think that the tool giving is a really important thing. And I also think it's really interesting that it's happening outside of traditional organizations. Do you want to talk to that, Alex? Yeah, I guess when we're talking about creativity, this is something very close to my heart. Um, I work with a woman called Nia Lewis, who is our Imagineer, and um, I don't think there's any other school in Australia that has an Imagineer yet. Um, the reason this is so important is because the key to being able to change the way things are is through imagination. Um, but we crush that out of people. I don't know what age I got to before I realised that you see children playing, right? They imagine whole new worlds. Um, they build whole new worlds and they share them with one another. And at some stage in our lives, we lose the ability to do that. And I think if we can help young people either to not lose that or in adult life to, to revisit that and start reimagining again, that's how we start to be able to address our complex problems. We have to be able to imagine what if the world was this way, otherwise we will remain stagnant. Um, I think beyond all the crucial maths and science and skills that we absolutely do need, we also need to value creativity and imagination now more than ever. Do you want to add anything to it? Yeah, I, I think, I, I feel like, and Alex, we've had this conversation a lot. Um, so we started the Global Shapers community here in SA together um, with some other friends who really, we just, you know, there are a group of us young people um, working in respective areas that just naturally became drawn to each other because like my friendship circle, I, I can't have these conversations with. Um, and it, it became, you know, a couple of years ago, I guess this sudden realization that for, for years I, I had a gap year. I dropped out of uni a couple of times, got there in the end, but just really felt this kind of disconnect between um, the way that I had been, I guess, socially engineered to think and uh, the people that I had found myself 
you know, surrounded by, who I absolutely love still to this day, but understanding that I had gone through a very traditional um, education, uh, had been very privileged in that I had received a good education, but there was still always this, this feeling missing. And it was this creative component that just was not being nurtured. And it was outside of school, um, you know, with family, with friends outside, but I started to actually see that as a negative thing. So um, it's been this, and it's still, you know, this evolving challenge within myself of trying to train and rewire myself to recognize those things that I suppressed for so long. Um, and with the shapers, we've started to naturally do that. But, you know, I think with regards to giving tools to young people, um, it's still very much a work in progress. And I think it's very reliant on, you know, it's so deeply ingrained within our systems. And I think to ever get to a point where we're nurturing creativity to the full effectiveness that it needs to be moving forward, um, we've got a long way to go. Can you talk a little bit about your global network? Uh, well, as in, it's, I wouldn't say it's my global well, network, but... Your, uh, the collective you? <laughs> um, so, well, and again, I think it's recognising that I actually recently left. <laughs> so it's a bit ironic, um, maybe rejoining, but the World Economic Forum, um, who, you know, the common household, not household name, but largely recognised globally, they've got a youth component, and across the world they've got um, local chapters, and it's... Uh, led by young people, uh, 20 to 30s, who are working to create a better city. Um, so we set up the Adelaide Hub a couple of years ago, but I think even that, and, and you know, through that have come incredible initiatives, um, which, you know, Alex, you can speak to about as well. Um, but while that's been an, an amazing model, um, because we can leverage this global brand, we can leverage, you know, paid opportunities, like they fly the curators out to Davos each year, and it's an incredible opportunity, but it's still one of privilege. And the people that we've attracted within the group, within SA, are still privileged. Um, and it's, but it's also, I think, what I kind of struggle with is recognising that that's okay. Yes, it's not where we want to be, but maybe we need that group to exist and that we need to lean on that sense of privilege that exists to then start to open doors for others. Um, and not seeing that as a negative, but seeing it as a positive, that's been my personal challenge. <laughs> yeah, I think being part of the Global Shapers has been, it's a huge opportunity for everyone involved. But as you said, I think we went through a time there where it was getting very white and privileged. Um, and there's a lot of hubs around the world that are. Um, but I think snaps to us in that we recognised that and went, this isn't intersectional and we don't want to do projects and make decisions for youth in Adelaide until we've got diversity on our team and not just cultural, but also um, of the, the sectors that we represent in work. Um, so we're well on our way there. Mm. Um, but I guess what's really exciting is we um, get to work on things like Conscious Cities at the moment is this really brilliant initiative that actually Trish Hansen brought to South Australia. Um, so we're going to be exploring the consciousness of Adelaide. Um, so, yeah, I think it's brilliant. We have that network and we can, we're backed by the World Economic Forum, um, but we just need to make sure that in bringing it here, we have a responsibility to make sure the door is open to all youth who fit that age bracket, not just 
other white people with uh, Adelaide Uni degrees, so. I, I think, yeah. sorry, it, it also leads itself to a conversation about it's a voluntary effort, and so where we've felt fallen on our feet is the fact that you've got a group of amazing people who are, you know, my closest friends to this day, um, doing it at their own accord outside of normal, you know, working hours. You, you can't do it to the extent that you want to um, because of that voluntary component, which is fine, but it's, it's, I think if we're to talk about, you know, what tools need to be given, I think there are many incredible initiatives that exist. A lot of them, people are doing it at their own accord and we need to recognise and give them, uh, you know, the resources to be able to make sure that they're truly effective and not, I guess, creating this duplication of effort because we're seeing the, the ebbs and flows of people's energies that fundamentally then lead that initiative to fall and then a new one to be created. There's a lot of loss of opportunity that exists along the way. The word that they used to use, and I don't know if they still do, is the creative discount, which is if you're doing something you really want to do, you don't necessarily you don't have to be paid for it. Mm. And, you know, I think that one of the challenges that we all face is how a society comes to value things mm. that don't necessarily, that have a societal return, not a monetary return. So your business does a lot of school, uh, tool giving and mentoring. And um, can you talk a little bit about women and helping women and interestingly men? Get a leg up, as your website says, which I quite like. <laughs> the, um, yeah, and I just wanted to also just say a little bit about the tools that we've just been talking about, so maybe I can weave it together. I do think that um, we, you know, we, we need more tools around this consciousness, um, and uh, it's not um, necessarily equipping, but it's, it's decolonising. It's getting rid of some of the things. And so, um, like, having a First Nations world view where there was enough for everyone um, and learning and walking alongside of First Nations and, um, you know, for me, the Uluru uh, Statement from the Heart is an instruction manual uh, for voice, truth-telling and treaty as the steps that need to be taken. And so I think about that advice from First Nations to me as a, as a settler, um, what, how do I listen to hear the voice? What is the truth telling that needs, and I think these are skill sets and tools. Yeah. yeah and, um, and therefore, where do we come together in that treaty making, if you like? So in a, in a business economic sense too, that means um, uh, finding ways in which we can hear one another. And so I'm always interested in doing that. So Chooks as a, as a Facebook group is a community. It's, um, it will never be monetized. It's a way for people to listen to one another and to hear what's important to each other mm. and why those things uh, matter. Um, there's also, I think, uh, an under, uh, under-acknowledged and an understated truth about the spirituality of place and our spirituality in this work. And so while that may not be something that you can put on a course here, why don't you t learn this tool about how to be kinder to each other or whatever, you know, how well, we do we... used to. We, I mean, we used to, so for me that's about sure. how we take away some of those things. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, as I said right at the beginning, I'm very grounded in that, you know, and I see myself as a Celt, and what are the, what are the spiritual tools that I've got, and for me... You know, that's about listening to the winds and the earth and the rain and all of that. And 
how do I take instruction from the land, from the sea, from the stars? Um, but I've had to I've had to tool up for that because that's been stripped away from my story, uh, you know. And so learning how to do that and and walking alongside First Nations people to I think there's a really big challenge for people like me, and it's something I challenge myself on. It's not about appropriation, you know. We've got to do our own work. You know, how are we rooted in our own story, and how does that story of um, you know, of being a, from, I am part of a colonising community, but, you know, that's the truth of it. So well, how do I hear that? How do I respond to that? Um, so in terms of, you know, how do we equip people to do that? That's what we're constantly doing in all sorts of ways. So we had a hackathon a couple of weekends ago and decolonisation and patriarchal and feminist principles were built into the brief. So people had to face it. So it wasn't like... Um, uh, you know, this, we are going to teach you this. We were saying, here's a problem we'd like to solve. These are the tools we'd like you to use it. Have fun, let us know how you go. In two days' time, we'll all hear about what your ideas were. And I feel that that's the best way of learning, to actually grapple with it, not to hear about it and say, oh, that's a lovely painting, or um, we'll do a welcome to country or an acknowledgement to country. Um, we've, got to, we've got to be uncomfortable. There's got to be some moment of discomfort because we know that we learn at, in discomfort. That's when we have our highest capacity mm. to learn. We have the highest capacity to learn and for change-making in crisis. So um, I quite like escalating some of those crisis moments so that the learning happens faster. So what's really interesting to me is these are really dangerous places. And so I kind of... So I wonder how we, you, educate and ensure safety. Because it's kind of, it's undermining an entire worldview. Um, and it's also, even within a community that you think would be sympathetic, may not be willing to go as far as is required. So can you talk about the danger and the safety and how and how you kind of protect the people that you bring on the journey? I guess coming at it, if we're looking at education, it's really hard because a lot of the things I do and say attack um, the system we currently have, which is in a way unfair. So we've got a lot of teachers in the conventional system who did all the right things. They finished their schooling, they went to university and they did all the subjects they needed to do to receive a piece of parchment that says, I can teach, I'm an educator. Um, and then they've been raising generations of kids in that system and there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They're, you know, they assimilated into the system and they're doing what they know um, and what's expected of them in this society. Um, but then someone like me comes along and says, this system is unsustainable and it doesn't serve us and you are wrong. Um, and if I was to reverse the situation and put myself where they are, that's deeply hurtful. Um, it's very, very hard to, to say to someone that you are wrong and this isn't what the future of education should be, and I don't respect what you do. And it's, um, I do respect what our teachers do, but it's very, very hard to have that conversation um, with people who, yeah, they didn't do anything wrong. Um, I'm not sure to answer how do we mitigate that. <laughs> um, you just have to be willing, I think, as Mara said, to be uncomfortable. You have to be willing to get into that zone, um, and you have to be willing to talk about it. And I think I'm big on radical transparency. You just have to say 
what you believe in and listen. You have to be able to deeply listen to others. Um, I think that's our pathway forward in it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure, but I it's, think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really fascinating because I think we are at a, a historic moment in terms of things like climate change, mm -hmm. where we are seeing enormous numbers of people coming together, and at the same time, we're seeing enormous numbers of people going, "No, it's not real." Um, and I guess I, I'm just, I guess because I come from the generation where we were going to smash the patriarchy, you know, you know, and it was we were going to just tear it all down. But you're not saying that. You're saying that you're going to rebuild something else mm -hmm. and eventually that will displace. Yeah, I am definitely saying that. I'm not interested in reform or, um, you know, program change. Uh, we need to do different systems. So I, I'm more of a midwife than a palliative care nurse, I guess. That's the way I'm seeing myself. Um, and I think there are three principles of practice, you know, for myself about how to make safe places for myself as well as to support others. And for that, you know, it's gratitude. Thank you for doing your degree and working all through those years. Thank you. That's mm. a genuine, I really am grateful. Um, I think it's sympathetic joy is the second one, which is being celebrating the really great things that are going on and being happy for others in, in that. And the third thing is radical generosity. So how can we continue to keep giving? Um, and if that, for me, those practices uh, actually help bring a new system to be. Yep. And if more people were doing that, um, and there are millions of people around the world with those practices, and more and more of them are doing it, and we're, we're joining up in, uh, in ways that are unfamiliar you know we you know this is this global kind of consciousness you, people it's like when somebody invents something and just the other day the same thing was invented on the other side of the world and the other you know we are we are a human species so if we can practice um, ways of being in the world that offer up uh, an alternative people say actually I'd like some of that and so that, that's that's the real how that relationship shift starts to happen I think um, I mean, maybe I'm Pollyanna, I don't know, but I really, truly believe that um, the current system we've got uh, is bad for everybody. It's bad for yeah. men. I mean, we only have to look at men's mental health, um, the suicide rates. I mean, it's not, patriarch is not doing them much good. So it's a system that's, it's not about men. Um, it's about privileging, it's about this kind of power. And colonisation for me is totally entwined with that. And in Australia and in South Australia, we've got some unique opportunities to actually, um, you know, bring forward the kind of world that we'd like seven generations in, to be living in. I guess we, I guess I keep thinking about um, how that message gets amplified. So then the last session we were talking about fires and we were talking about the disconnect between community work and government work and that government can move on and lose interest. And also what I think about, we were thinking about the media and how the media operates in that. So I guess I'm curious about ways that you can amplify this. And in that amplification, persuade people over. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of haters and you know, there's a lot of deniers. So maybe talk about how you amplify is it done through the individual or does it have to find a kind of uh, stage, a kind of a presentation, which you do in your festival? Maybe uh, I'll start with you. 
I think that we don't have enough of a conversation about the value of trust. I think for it's very easy to focus on these are the problems and put our energy into what needs to be fixed. Um, but I personally have found it a lot more effective to accept things for how they are, not necessarily have to agree with them, but accept that as you know the current case, um, and then work on building a relationship embodied in, in trust with that situation, individual, organisation, that is then moving to a different direction. So, Moira, you know, to what you just said that really resonated in that we could spend decades on trying to fix a broken system um, or we could just accept that we're living with a broken system. How about we create this new system? Um, how are we going to do that? And I think having more of a solution-finding mentality that really comes down to, you know, this universal, universal language that we all speak is that is one of emotion. You know, we all have feelings. We all have, you know, whether that's happy, sad, excited. Um, I personally find it, it really quite fascinating understanding how um, the minute that a conversation, whether it be with, you know, a potential partner, speaker, whoever it may be, attendee, um, the minute that conversation is started with, you know, that kind of feeling aspect and, and trying to understand them as an individual and their motivations and then from there building a conversation directed, like based in their that sense of feeling directed into an outcome. I don't quite know how to say what's in my mind, but I think understanding how to be empathetic, you know, the importance of EQ. Um, we have so many conversations about technology and IQ and uh, artificial intelligence, um, we're not recognising and celebrating and harnessing our naturally inherent human capability um, and building trust within that that then allows us to create solutions. Yeah. Do you want to add anything? Because, I mean, the one, the thing that is popping into my mind is injustice. Mm. You know, that seven generations might be long. Just... I'll just float that one out there. Would you like to add to that? And then maybe we could talk about what, how injustice works. Yeah, I just think it's interesting we talk about the system being broken. Um, I'd push back on that. I don't think systems can be broken. Systems do precisely mm -hmm. what they've been built to do. Whether the broken parts were intended or not, they do exactly what we as people program them to do. And with the behaviours we use, we uphold and we maintain the system the way that it is um, until we start participating in systems change. Um, yeah, that's the only thing in my head after that. I don't think it can be broken. We, we do no, things I to mean, keep it the way that it is. Um, Trish and I were having a conversation. Yeah. You should be up here, really. And, you know, we were saying that, you know, one of the challenges of racism is racism is a system. Mm -hmm. um, and it serves the majority very well and has for... In millennia, really. So I guess, do you want to, I mean, I think in, injustice is, I don't know, what, what are we going to do? Why are we going to fix it? <laughs> Quick. I think we, well, for me, I, my work has always been around, and this is right back to the roots of my social work, is that, you know, you're trying, for me, it's always about creating the conditions for a more just and equitable world. So that's the little bit I can do. 
and um, how do you create those conditions? And there can be really, you know, in, in the olden days, organising community meetings, you know, just making sure that, you know, you had childcare available, that there were no, um, it was easy access for people with disabilities. It was at a time which, where the bus stopped in front of the building, you know. These seem very trite, but you'd be amazed how often these things just still do not happen. So what is it there, so for me, in, in my practice, what do I need to put in place? What are the conditions I need to create to support a more just and more equitable experience? And then that starts to um, help. So that means often then you're doing things, like I've been involved in a very large um, change-making event that we've held around um, the country. And so we worked very hard, the organisers, to make sure we had equal numbers of um, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. Now, just making that one decision changed the whole way we talked about scholarships, partnerships, sponsorship, da 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 da, -da where we had it, whether it was a public place, food. So, you know, how you build those things in. And um, Danielle didn't give this example, but I'll just put these two things together. So, um, at South Start this year, I was, after we had um, the acknowledgement of country, I was the first person on the stage. And, um, and I told a little story um, from a little chair. And I was so um, grateful to, um, to South Star and to Danielle in particular for trusting me with that space on the program because that enabled um, a framing of a whole lot of things that were going to continue to happen and, and conversation. So it's when we're in those opportunities, how do we, how do we build, create the conditions for that? So I think we all can do that every single day, you know, whether we're at the supermarket or in our car. You know, there's all sorts of ways we can do that. So bringing that top of mind helps. Thank you, right. Uh, we do have time for questions. The microphone is right there. If you could just come up to the microphone, um, which is right in the center here. Yeah, it's good, it's good for me because I'm such an angry little bean. Hello. Um, inspiring stuff. Thank you all. Um, I wanted to ask all of you your idea on a what's a seems at first a radical idea, the idea of paying people a living wage to work in community groups, non-government organisations. Um, we have a huge amount of untapped potential in people who are currently unemployed, um, but perhaps don't have the privilege to be able to work in volunteer organisations because they're really too busy just trying to get, you know, the ends to meet. Thank you. Can I just say a weird statistic, which is useful here? One in four Americans will never have another job. They will sit from the last, from about five years ago, outside the paid economy, because there is not a job for them. It has nothing to do with desire or education or qualification. And I think that, you know, that kind of says it all to me. What are we gonna do with these people? We can't do nothing. Throw to you. I think there definitely needs to be a conversation around that. Um, I think the minute that money becomes a motivating source, we fall into a dangerous territory when speaking about community. Um, so it's something that I've thought a lot about uh, personally because I absolutely agree and believe that there are individuals um, who, are, who need to be supported. Um, whether that be financially or, you know, by means of other resources. Um, 
you know, I could name a few who just never, you know, they're too humble, they're too, you know, non-self-serving and really fundamentally making a difference. But I'm not sure that um, if there were suddenly to become a, a paid uh, initiative or campaign that then seeks out others, that that would be seeking out the right voices. It would need to be set up in a way that... Um, is where money's not the motivating factor, I think. So I don't have, I, I think it's a conversation that needs to be had more. I don't know the answers to what it would look like, um, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's a deeper issue to do with not paying people a fair living wage um, in the paid work we already have. I know that me personally, um, I had to work three jobs in 2018, still couldn't get by. Um, so I couldn't, as you said, then go and volunteer and give back to community because I couldn't even keep my head above water. Um, so I think if we found a way to make sure people were actually paid a fair living wage in the jobs that they did have so that they had space and capacity to, to give back to, to community in a way that they wanted to, um, I've always thought that was kind of a solution, but yeah, I think it's interesting you've now brought to the table what if we paid them in these community groups. Um, I agree with Danielle, it needs a discussion. I think um, it's a solution worth exploring, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a big fan of universal basic income. We could get rid of, you know, probably something like 30,000, 40,000 public servants uh, who are currently administering a program just to make sure people are compliant. Um, I'll just, you know, just, just do it. It'll be very... We can do it. We've proven we can do it. We just did it uh, here in Australia. So um, I, the two things I think make the biggest difference would be universal basic income for everyone uh, with no age limit, actually. I think that... Um, and I'd also... Child, free childcare. Those two things would shift um, all conditions... I was once upon a time the CEO of Volunteering South Australia and Northern Territory. I am a serial volunteer. I really believe in the gift of volunteering and volunteers um, using their time, talents and energy. And lots of people are volunteering in very informal ways, looking after the neighbours' kids, helping out somebody's homework, or, you know, pulling the weeds out on their way walking down the street, cleaning up the beaches when they're walking their dog. So there's always we do care for each other and it's not um, visible or not counted. So for me, the two things, universal basic income and free childcare. That's, we can do it, we just did it. So just remember that when you go to vote. Well, thank you very much indeed for giving us some ideas, but I've just been to the previous talk where I've listened to five women, one with a detention bracelet around her ankle, two who are almost homeless and talking about food waste and not enough food, and you talk about um, injustice and our education system not meeting the needs of the 21st century. What is wrong with the system is that we have to look at the big picture and we have to go into Parliament. Unless we stand up and go into politics, as I have done in my youth when I was 27, so forgive me for being embarrassed about this, when I was 27 I went into politics and changed many things. So 
As long as you are, you're so sincere and wonderful about what you do, but unless you go into politics, like you talked about the patriarchy. Is there um, a question? We, we have to change. No, I want to know why you do not bring. I thought you had a conversation. I thought that's what you wanted. But if you want a question is how can you relate change unless we have people like yourselves in Parliament? How can we do that? How can we get across that? That's great. That? That's fine. Okay. That's a question. Thank you. So for me, um, I've, I've run for Parliament. I've been a Chief of Staff and a Minister in the State Government. So I understand that question very well. I've um, been President and State Leader for Women's Networks and Political Parties and nationally. Um, politics is not is the last place. Parliament comes after the community are already there. Legislation comes after. If you want to look for incredible leaders who have caused change, mostly they have not been elected. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Malala, the beautiful young Greta. So I want us to not default. Um, I have a really strong view about this, having done it most of my life and regretting some of those years. I don't want us to default to our political leadership. We are all leaders. We can do everything we need to do at whatever level, whether it's just in our home or not just in our home, in our home, which is a very important place for this work to happen. And as a feminist, for me, the personal is political. It's, you know, we do have to take action in our everyday lives, whether we're doing the recycling at home or encouraging our local council for green waste. Um, we, if we keep looking to the political system as the only solution, we are basically outsourcing our citizenship, and I don't want that to happen. There was one more question there, I think. It might be the last one. Did you have a question? Yep. Fantastic talk altogether. But one of the things I wanted to ask really was of Alex. Um, your school sounds really inspirational and uplifting for people who find themselves in a system that really doesn't work for them. And I think that's a lot of students. How do people find their way to your school? Are they directed by other conventional schools? Or is there some kind of, I don't know, something out there that people know how to find you? Mm -hmm. So what I think is really interesting and is also um, a problem we need to solve is we only take about 50 young people every intake and they're with us for 18 months. So at any given time, we only have 100 young people in the school and we know that there are young people, there's probably thousands in the state who could benefit from this model of schooling, um, but we're not sure how we find them and how they find us yet. It's a work in progress. Um, we only started in 2018, so we're still working out how we get there. At the moment, peer-to-peer -peer has been the biggest referral process. It's these young people find us, and no matter how much we can work with um, job seeker providers, it's the young people to other young people um, that's allowing them to find out where we are at the moment. Yeah. Is your school the only school of the like in the whole of Australia or in South Australia? Or is there a way of scaling this out? So my understanding is um, definitely in South Australia. 
Um, there is a new one called Compass, opening 2022, who are very similar under the Catholic Ed system, which is absolutely brilliant. We now have another one that's actually going to sit within Davron Park. So as much as we're central, I think it's brilliant that they are sitting within a lower socioeconomic area so that they are actually easily accessed by the young people who are marginalised there. Um, nationwide, I'm not sure. I don't think there's many. Um, so a lot of my role is finding out who, who is doing this, um, how are they doing it, what's working, what's not. Um, Europe is a kind of leader in this space in terms of studio schooling, new schooling. Um, but what I would really love is for us to not be the alternative and for the conventional to not be the conventional. I think there has to be some way where all of it is just education and we have a, a system that allows young people to um, explore their identity as well as getting all the crucial skills. I don't think there needs to be an us and them. I think there needs to be a way where we're coming together as well in future. Very sadly, we are out of time. Please thank our wonderful speakers, Alex, Daniel, and Moira. Uh, it was a real treat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.